This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 24, recorded on December 19th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, and today I'm with someone who's becoming a co-host almost. He's uh, appeared on our show now. This is his third time, Andy Cole from the Alfred I. DuPont Children's Hospital in Delaware. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Tim. It's, uh, it's great to be back. Uh, I'm a big fan of the program and, and what you guys are trying to do. Well, I appreciate you being here. And you have brought along uh, a special guest today. Could you say a few words to introduce Maki to our audience? So, uh, yeah, it's my, my pleasure to introduce uh, Maki Skaradavu, who is the medical director of the National Cord Blood Program at the, at the New York Blood Center, one of the oldest uh, cord blood banks um, and largest cord blood banks in, in the United States and, and, the, and the world. Great. Welcome, Maki. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So this is obviously a very important topic. Cord blood banking is something that's really been developed uh, over the last uh, one to two decades. In fact, I think your center was the first to really promote it and use it. Could you tell us a little bit about the background of of cord blood banking and what the idea was behind it? Sure. Um, Actually, cord blood banking started in the field as related transplants, so sibling transplants. Uh, and it started with a transplant for a patient with Fanconi anemia in '88 in France, and it was quite a story because the patient and the and the graft went from the United States to France to have the transplant there because of Elian Gluckman being the expert on Fanconi anemia. So after a few more sibling transplants, it was pretty obvious that this was a good source of hematopoietic stem cells, and then the New York Blood Center embarked in this feasibility study of creating an unrelated donor bank and collecting cord blood units here in New York, um, storing them and trying to use them for unrelated transplants. The initial attempt was to have a few units and very quickly was funded by the NHLBI and became a big program. And instead of two or three transplants over the first year, there were more than 80 transplants. So it was pretty obvious that there was an additional need for donors and the program has expanded. So how, how much has it expanded? What are the numbers today? Um, the cord blood inventory here in this bank is over 60,000 cord blood units, and we have provided more than 4,500 units for transplant worldwide, not only in the U.S., but international and U.S. Well, that's terrific. You know, one of the advantages uh, of cord blood banking is uh, to make available, this is my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, more options for patients who need, uh, because you can get away with some some mismatches that maybe you can't get away with adult donors. Is that correct? That is correct. So what happens is for the adult volunteer donors, we need a very close match, as good as a perfect match, would we call it. And and given the diversity of the patients we see. Um, this is not always easy for the patients of ethnic minorities. Um, the, the difference with cord blood is we can accept some level of mismatch, that's number one, and two, we can have a higher representation of the minorities in the donor population. Therefore, it becomes a little easier 
to find appropriate donors for patients of ethnic minorities. And in the clinical field, we can see that because now there are more and more patients of ethnic minorities being transplanted with cord blood units. So why is it that there's a higher representation of the minority uh, units? Is it because they're, um, it's easier to capture donors at the time of delivery compared to volunteers later? Yes. So what happens is with the adult volunteer donors, essentially the registry waits for the volunteers to come to the registry. There are, you know, outreaches and, and uh, tries to um, get more people, but the volunteers have to come to the registry. In contrast with corporate banks, the bank can go to the hospitals where the minority donors deliver. So, it, it, and it has been funded by the United States now, by the government, so that the national cord blood inventory, this big inventory of cord blood units in the U.S., um, targets minority hospitals, hospitals where minority donors deliver, and um, has a special preference for those so that we can increase the, the percentage of minority donors in the, in the cord blood inventory. Oh, that's a great point. So that, that makes perfect sense that you can go to the donors rather than having them come to you. One of the other yes. advantages, or Tim, let me, I yeah, just want to add a, a, a couple uh, a couple pieces of data to that from the from the National Merit Donor Program, uh, and it, this is data that's available on their on their website. If if you look at the distribution of uh, transplants by stem cell source, so just over the past uh, fifteen years, in 1998 we weren't doing any cord blood transplants. In in 2004, about five percent of the transplants done through the National Marrow Donor Program uh, were cord blood. And then in 2009, uh, that number was up to, to 22%. And if, if you break that down, pediatrics versus adults, pediatric uh, transplants, almost half of the transplants done for kids in the United States through the NMDP now uh, are, are use cord blood donors. There's a, certainly a, a dose advantage to that since the cord blood is a finite volume. Uh, so you can get away with uh, uh, using that for, for smaller patients. But to, to Maki's point, the, if you look at the, the distribution across um, the different ethnic groups, for Caucasian patients, only about 18% of the transplants done through the NMDP are cord blood. But for Hispanic, uh, Latino patients or African-American patients, it's almost half. So that targeted donation... Uh, plus the uh, less stringent matching criteria has really been a, a great advantage for minority patients who only have about a 65% chance of finding an, an adult donor who's a, who's a good match. Now, those are some great points. And uh, one of the questions I was going to ask either of you was about the pediatric use because that's, um, you know, one of the issues, I think, with cord blood donations or, or transplants is the limited volume. So what... What size or age is it really feasible to go up to uh, with cord blood banking? Well, the, um, uh, we, we want to give a, a certain uh, volume or number of cells uh, per kilo of recipient weight. So if the product's big enough, you can go any size, any age. And the more centers that are doing what the New York Blood Center is doing that are, that are banking publicly, and the more units we have, the higher we can set the bar at the time of collection. So um, if we have good collection centers doing skilled collections and we have a good inventory, we can choose to freeze only those products that will be useful for somebody who's 70, 80 kilos 
uh, plus the younger patients as well. Okay. I apologize to our listeners about the quality of the sound here with Dr. Cole, but um, we'll, we'll bear with it. Um, so what, for either of you, what are the current, it sounds like this has been quite a success now over the last 20 years or so uh, in terms of establishing this uh, as, a, as a real modality that's useful for a variety of patient types. Um, what are the current, and, and I assume that this is a transplant source that can be used for any kind of disease that requires uh, allogeneic transplant, is that correct? It is correct, and actually cord blood has been used already for pretty much every indication that there is there in terms of diseases for um, bone marrow replacement. Good. So what are the current challenges in the use of cord blood? Should I start? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So, uh, no, um, so uh, as Andy said earlier, Dr. Kolb said earlier, the total nucleated cell dose remains a challenge. That means that when we have a unit, the unit was collected way before we have identified a patient. And that unit may contain enough cells for that patient based on the patient's uh, kilograms body weight or, or may, uh, much more than needed or, or less. So that remains a problem because the majority of the transplant patients overall are adults or, or bigger patients and we need bigger units. Um, there have been some approaches in order to overcome this limitation, one of which is you might have heard about the double unit cord blood transplants. So instead of using one unit, um, clinical researchers started using two units, it worked well and then they have continued and now about a third of the transplants in the U.S., particularly for the adult patients, are being done with two units. Um, it doesn't really act additively. We know it helps and there's a lot of research trying to figure out how these two units interact with each other and whether there's a synergistic effect in terms of the engraftment. There is some early indications that there is uh, protection from re relapse, which is a very encouraging point. Um, but it all started as a way to get over the cell dose. Another way that's actually pretty active these days is to try to take these cells and put them into culture uh, as an ex vivo expansion uh, study. So try to have them multiply in ex vivo, in vitro, get some progenitor cells and then infuse those cells with the hope that they will engraft faster and therefore you know, make the transplant a little easier for the patient, shorten the period of neutropenia. And actually, since you asked, um, there have been one or two studies ongoing in the United States, and there are probably two more coming up in the next couple of years, just to examine in the clinic the effect of ex vivo expansion. So that's challenge number one, if you want, the cell dose. Another challenge is still, although we do have a higher percentage of ethnic minorities in the donor population, we cannot cover every single patient. That is related to the cell dose. So um, even if we have some, for example, Asian or black African-American donors, the units may not be big enough for the patients that we need them. And to make things a little more complicated, uh, we, we and other banks have shown that the number of cells that we get from African-American units seems to be lower than that from Caucasians. And that could be a very true natural event for different ethnicities or races, but we didn't have such a good understanding before. On the other hand, the patients need similar cell doses, so you can't say just because a patient is black, that person would do better with lower TMC. So it, it creates another obstacle, if you want, because uh, the banks have to collect way more minority donor units to be able to have the units needed for the patients the minority patient. 
when you're using two units, do they have to be matched, or can there be some mismatch between those two units? And is there really a limitation of two? If you're going to use two, could you use three or four? Uh, that's a very good question. So th there was an earlier study with three and four and five, and it didn't go very well. And the idea probably is that there is, is minimum if you that will allow the unit to engraft, and you have to go above that minimum. So very small units may not work. It's not just an additive effect. So if, if we usually select a unit that is sort of adequate, but we want to enhance the engraftment potential of that unit with a second one. The study started with some partial matching between the units, but there's a, there are clinical there's clinical information now to say that you probably don't need to match the two units between them. Now they are matched to the patient, and we accept as a minimum a four out of six match. So they have some common antigens between the units, but we don't look at this point. We don't look at the level of matching between the units. At least most centers don't. Some still do. Kim, it's also uh, it, it's also possible in an early. Um early development to use a, uh, a mismatched T-cell depleted adult donor to give you rapid engraftment of a myeloid lineage in combination with a cord blood. And in a haplo setting, you get early engraftment of, uh, engraftment of, of the haploidentical myeloid cells to help the patient get through that early period of, of high, uh, high risk for transplant toxicity. But over time, the cord engrafts with a uh, with a much lower risk and incidence of, of GVHD, so there is um, there are many ways to manipulate these cord blood products to help with uh, both uh, reduce risk for graft versus host disease and enhanced uh, engraftment. Two of the barriers to uh, uh, survival in, in transplant. That's very interesting. So you mentioned uh, reduced graft versus host disease. I presume that's because these are less uh, stimulated or less mature cells, does that also uh, translate to a uh, less graft versus leukemia effect? It actually doesn't. Um, that was the fear from the beginning that these uh, lymphocytes are neonatal, they are naive, and they might not work against um, tumors or leukemias to be specific. But so far, all the comparison studies between core blood and um, other sources of, of cells, bone marrow or peripheral blood, have not shown a difference. If anything, they are the same or better. So there is no indication that cord blood grafts do not help against leukemia. And actually, there have been studies about the double unit grafts, and for some reason, they seem to have a better anti-leukemic effect. Perhaps it's an enhanced immune effect. There's a lot of research or stimulation hypothesis at this point. We don't know why, but there are two or three centers reporting that they do see a lower incidence of relapse in high-risk patients after double-unit cord blood transplants. That's very interesting. So is it known why there's a reduced graft versus host, but not reduced graft versus leukemia? That might give you a clue as to how to maximize one and minimize the other. Uh, I don't think I have the answer for that. I mean, there's still work happening, but we don't really pinpoint. At this point, we cannot pinpoint why mechanisms work. This is happening. So that might be a topic of research in this field. The easy answer to that, Tim, and maybe it's an oversimplification, is that uh, the cells that cause GVHD are not are, aren't the cells that cause the graft versus leukemia effect. And and the two, while while there is a higher incidence of graft versus leukemia in patients that have GVHD, they're probably not in most cases the same immune cells uh, mediating the two different effects. But, but as Maki said, there's a lot more that needs to be done to fully understand that, uh, that effect.
other other challenges in the field that are on people's minds? Well, unfortunately, we have to come to the financial issues because this is a big challenge for the field. Um, Corporate banking is not it, an inexpensive procedure. It's actually quite expensive. Um, and that translates to a pretty generous price for the cord blood units. And if you consider patients that stay in the hospital for two or three months after transplant because of various complications, then these transplants become finan a financial burden for the hostels and the insurances. So that's not without um, consideration. Part of why different approaches, such as the haploidentical plus the cord blood that Dr. Polk was referring to, have attracted physicians because they might shorten the period of hospital stay, they might shorten the complications, and therefore, you know, the, the, the stay in the hospital, the expense of the actual transplant. So there are ways that we're trying to investigate to make these transplants more feasible, but also more financially sustainable for the hospitals. And is there any problems with uh, insurance reimbursement these days? It depends on the state, actually. Uh, in several meetings, we hear different things from different states. So uh, for New York, I can tell you that through Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have had very good coverage for most of the patients. We have requested double unit grafts. But apparently, there are some states where the insurances do not approve that, and transplanters have to come up with a different combination. What are some of the current research projects ongoing with respect to cord blood transplantation? There's a lot of work that I know of that is happening in order to try to expand these cells or to make them more mature so that they can bridge this period of neutropenia that we were talking. So there's there's one area of study where they, the cells are going to be put in culture and they multiply, but you don't want them to differentiate a lot. So they remain early progenitor cells and when they engraft, they will take a long time to engraft, but maybe shorter than the actual time of a regular cord blood unit. That can be as long as four weeks sometimes. Um, there are other efforts to expand these cells towards a more committed progenitor, uh, more towards the neutrophil cells. So when they when they come into the patient, they very quickly give a peripheral blood neutrophil count so you shorten the period of neutropenia. Both of those are pretty active right now and they're being investigated for the clinical setting. There, are, there is a lot of work also on immune uh, modulation of these transplants. There's a lot of work on T-regulatory cells and how these, in addition to the cord blood, could uh, have an effect on leukemia or tumors. Um, there's a lot of work on what type of HLA matching one needs. Uh, from the beginning, we said we don't need a very close match, but perhaps the better the match, the better the transplant. Uh, there's more and more data coming out of that as we have more patients to analyze. So it's a pretty active field. No, I, I, I agree with all that. I think that the um, in vitro expansion so that uh, you can increase the, the volume of stem cells or number of stem cells given to, to different donors is a, is a very interesting area. I think differentiation into uh, into other cell types as well, so that it could be uh, cord blood can be a source of mesenchymal stem cells and uh, for for infarcted uh, cardiac tissue, for example. There's been work looking at differentiation into um, uh, neuronal stem cells as well. I think that they, it's a very interesting source of stem cells that can be used to treat a variety of different diseases, not just uh, not just bone marrow diseases. That's a great point, and it brings up the question about whether a given parent having a newborn might want to have their baby's cord frozen for some future application such as that. What are your thoughts about that? 
right, right now, the, the AAB, um, AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Society of Blood and Marrow Transplantation, and the American College of Obstetrics and, and Gynecologists all have position statements against uh, private banking. And, and the reason why is that right now the chances of an individual family using that product is very small and does not support uh, the cost uh, of, of cryopreservation. Uh, and, the, and the chances of that product, that uh, autologous product or, or sibling product, uh, being the only source of stem cells for an affected patient, uh, patient is even less. So, so really there's very little advantage um, to doing that, private banking of cord blood stem cells. And there's not the same quality control. Uh, so you can pay your money up front, pay for your annual storage fee, and never really knowing if, if you're uh, cryopreserving a, a, a product with an adequate cell dose or something that, that's relatively useless. So I think the uh, the, the quality control in that, in that field is, is um, in the private banking setting is also uh, pretty poor right now. So is there not federal regulations, guidelines for that? Uh, there are federal uh, guidelines, and, and maybe Maki can confirm uh, what they are as a, as a cord blood banker, but there's no, uh, there are no reporting guidelines um, to back to the consumer. Right, and you know the federal guidelines apply to public banking. Um, the private banks don't actually have to follow. Uh, most of the private banks claim they follow the FACT guidelines, but again, the reporting is not as complete as it is for the public banks. So we really don't have this information available for review. What other topics or what other issues do we need to discuss about, about corporate banking? Recently, over the last uh, two years, the FDA has come uh, has been involved more um, closely with cord blood and the regulations and actually requested that the cord blood banks be licensed. Um, a licensed product is like a, is a drug, right? So the FDA in some ways looks at cord blood as a biological drug and requests that, that it, it will go through all the same very strict uh, requirements and regulations to be licensed as a biological drug. We actually, as a bank, are the first bank to be licensed. We do have a licensed product right now, but it is quite a difference from where we started to where we're going. Um, it is it is very interesting that and very encouraging from a patient safety point that the regulations are so strict because all it happens at the end is one has to think about patient safety and effectiveness. However, it does make the field a little bit more complicated in terms of what the steps that need to be fulfilled are, and it makes it more expensive. On the other hand, if you think of, of cord blood as a biological drug, it can be used just by a prescription, right? Um, so in one way, we, we can use broader cord blood if we had all the licensed units uh, that we need. And in another way, there can be off-label uses, which means that other, other diseases may benefit from cord blood. The units that are not licensed, which means up till today, whatever has been produced that did not meet the, all the high safety requirements of the FDA, uh, will be still used as an investigational product. So now the patients have to sign a different consent, which is um, investigational new product consent, which may cause a little bit of fear in the field and in the patients because this is something they didn't have to do up till now. It's sort of a change in the regulations, and it will be up to physicians to explain very carefully to the patients what that means for them. 
So it's not that anything about the older cord is a problem compared to what it used to be. It's just that that's from here forward, the new the new cords are undergoing more scrutiny. That is correct. Uh, in a sense, it is correct. I mean, according to the regulations, everything has to be done according to GMP and GDP and. This was not always the case in corporate banks. Most of them started as research pro projects, so the regulations were not the same. But these are the products that have been used and thousands of them have been transplanted. So right now we're coming in with more strict requirements, more safe requirements if you want, but that doesn't mean that the older products cannot be used. Well, how much has it increased the cost per cord? Uh, I don't know yet because we haven't come up with new prices. <laughs> I see. <laughs> uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to say because um, I sort of alluded to that earlier that the cost is already high for the clinical transplants because not only from from the unit itself, but from the complications and the hospital stay. So really, there is not a lot of room to do reimbursement for the banks because the prices are already high. So there needs to be sort of a different approach to it because the banks are not, you know, are not sustainable at this point. And on the other hand, we don't want to have cord blood transplants not happening because the insurances are not covering them. Well, that actually brings up another point is, so if you have 60,000 cords in your bank, how many of those are you using? And, and so it, it speaks to the investment that you have to put into, uh, you know, versus the amount that you're getting back from those being used. Yes, it's a huge investment. Uh, the general idea is about 1% of the units collected every year will be used. However, because you need to have a very large number in, in order to be able to find the right unit for every patient, including in all the minorities, the ethnic populations that we have in the U.S., there is need for funding. And the U.S. government has participated in this funding. It subsidizes banks, but that might not be enough. There's, I mean, we need to have very large inventories in order to find good matches for the patients. We know that the better the match, the better the outcome. So it sort of fits back to, to saying that we need to fund the programs if we want to have successful cord blood transplantation. So if, if uh, a listener wants to get in more involved in either the advocacy for cord blood banking, say in terms of fundraising or advocacy regarding regulations or raising awareness is there a way they can get involved there are several websites that people can get more information and perhaps get involved one of them is the hersa site um, that is doing the funding the national marrow donor sites are always always welcome advocates and so is our site the national Cord blood program and i'm sure hospitals also i mean there's a lot of information at the different transplant centers and there's a lot of people that want to be involved and help patients and hospitals i think uh, tim just uh, if you want to add this uh, my own my only other uh, summary comment is about uh, uh, the advantages of, of, of public cord blood banking. And, and for those areas where it's funded and available, uh, I think it's an amazing, uh, amazing resource for our patients. For those areas where it's not funded and, and not available, uh, there are some states like New Jersey, for example, that, that fund um, public cord blood banking programs. And, um, and, and there may be a uh, an ability for for individual families to to make a difference on a uh, on a state level for ad, by advocating for public funding for cord blood banking. It certainly uh, has a huge impact on the on the patients that that receive those uh, transplants. It brings up the question of global health. Do pa patients in other countries, third world countries, have access to cord bloods? There are many cord blood banks around the world. If anything, there are probably too many. 
um, because sometimes small cord blood banks cannot function as, as appropriately as larger ones. Um, there has been an explosion of cord blood banks recently in, this, in South America. Um, there are many in Japan to the point that about half of all the transplants in Japan, if not more, are supported now by cord blood, and there are many in Europe. So um, the idea is not so much how many, but how good quality controls they have. And unfortunately, they're not standardized global guidelines. So it's very hard for us, for example, from one transplant center reviewing products from different banks to know which ones to use or not to use. Um, and some of them support to a great extent the programs of the countries and get a lot of national support and some others. Um, but again, one problem that one can describe is that there is no standardized um, guidelines. So, for example, South America or Australia may have totally different regulations of how they, they deal with the products. And that's a problem because there's a lot of importing and exporting products. Actually, there's an international organization that reports that about 20% of products are exported for the U.S. And U.S. imports about 17% of cord blood products. So there's a lot of international exchange in this product, and it would be very good to have more standardized guidelines. Yeah, it sounds like you guys need to organize a world conference in a nice place in part of the world to discuss this. Maybe we need you to do that. <laughs> what? Uh, so is there a centralized registry, or does if you want to find a, a, a perfect match somewhere and you have, say, a Japanese patient in your center, uh, do you have to go and search each of those banks separately around the world, or can you search them all at once? In the U.S., there is the single point of access of the National Maradona Program. So getting in there, uh, you will be able to search the U.S. banks and many of the international banks, but not all of them. And then there is a site from Europe, the Bon Maradonors Worldwide, which is, again, an international registry um, that will search pretty much the majority of the uh, cord blood banks worldwide. The problem is not the searching because you may get a very large amount of information. The problem is selecting after a point because you may find a lot of units around the world, but it's very difficult to compare the unit characteristics. Great. Well, I think, I think we probably covered the gamut of this topic. Uh, I appreciate uh, both of you being here. Andy, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure, Tim. Thanks for having me. And Maki, thank you for being here. My pleasure, too. Thank you. I hope uh, if, we, if we have any listeners that write in questions, perhaps I'll forward them on to you for your answers, and we'll, we'll see if we can uh, generate any further discussion about this important topic. For any listeners, we're happy to read your emails and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org, or please feel free to post your comments or questions on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification uh, using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks again to Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, Pat Buckley, our creativity consultant, and Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, which is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.